Hello and welcome. Uh, it is Wednesday the 23rd of March. Um, you find me squirrelled away in the attic study in St Werberg's once again. Um, the kids are at school, the dog is walked, there's a cup of coffee in hand. Um, it is a beautiful, if not uh, slightly worryingly warm spring day. Um, make a brew, pull up a chair, sit down. Uh, I, I did say I was going to keep these voice notes to kind of short 10 minute snippets, but this one's definitely going to run over because um, there is quite a lot to say. Firstly, apologies from me for the silence over the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's been quite a lot going on since I left you on my way to Devon, um, and it takes a little bit of time to process and move through that kind of deeper emotional work that's going on down there. Um, and I've decided to allow myself that. So it's taken the time that it's taken. Uh, and I have decided to allow myself as much time as I need um, to be ready. Uh, we have a fight club rule at School of Myth. Um, you don't talk about fight club. Uh, but what I would like to say is that the work that's going on down there has been profoundly transformative for me. Um, I really went to do that course starting last September very ready for a change. Um, uh, I was really, I was looking for something, right? I was really ready for kind of deep and substantial transformation of almost every area of my life, from my work relationships to my personal relationship to some relationships with family and friends that weren't serving me anymore. Like I, I was really looking for something. Uh, and I found it, that course has been profoundly impactful um, and incredibly meaningful and really helped me feel like I've found a way back to myself again. Um, I came back from Devon, we stayed an extra few days, so we extended our trip uh, in the longhouse of Sunny Women, uh, and I think I hit Bristol again on Tuesday afternoon. Um, I was returning from that weekend away feeling incredibly nourished uh, and positive and much more sort of back to my old self than I than I had been in January and February. Um, and it's with that context in mind that I'm going to talk about what it felt like to come back from Devon and run headfirst into Bristol local food politics um, after sort of two months of spaciousness and hibernation. Uh, I won't lie, it was a bit of a brick in the face to try and uh, dip a toe in or sort of say, say yes to helping, but just in a small sort of a way. And then immediately experience this incoming wave of anxiety that um that coming into my coming into contact with my old work causes for me it would seem um so it's really given me some space to reflect on well why 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 is that what's going on with that um and I don't want to dwell too long on this topic because contrary to popular belief I, I, I wasn't aiming for this to become a newsletter about Bristol restaurant politics um I have much bigger fish to fry frankly um uh, and yet our, our city is very small and it, and it seems very easy to keep getting pulled back towards this sort of old, old story. Um, but the last couple of weeks really did teach me a lot. So we're going to stop in Bristol briefly. Uh, we're going to segue nicely into the Keith McNally story. And then I'm going to tie up with some thoughts about the reality that we find ourselves in, uh, hopefully focusing more on the opportunity than the problem. But you need context to begin with. So uh, what happened last week was that I'd come back from Devon and just prior to going to Devon, I had made a commitment to help out with Bristol's Cook for Ukraine fundraiser. Um, and I, I, it's important to me to be completely clear about how this played out, right? Because, again, this is not supposed to be some, uh, you know, wild industry takedown. This is commentary about noticing my personal emotional response to certain sections of the hospitality industry, right? Um, so when Russia invaded Ukraine, it felt incredibly uncomfortable to me not to get busy doing anything. Um, what I've really noticed about myself over these last couple of weeks is that I've been operating in fight or flight mode for such a long time that my entire nervous system is predisposed to really only feeling comfortable if I'm busy, right? As long as I'm running, as long as the phone is always ringing and the email always pinging, then I must have value and I must have worth. So the idea of doing nothing... Um, or the kind of internal uh, energy that was that was encouraging me to get busy when a crisis hit um, and, and actively having to kind of sit on my hands and say, that's not my job anymore. I'm not choosing to, to be active in that space anymore. It, that sat really uncomfortably with me. Um, 
rightly or wrongly, it it, uh, it sat very uncomfortably with me. It it feels very much like when a crisis hits, uh, I I feel a great deal of responsibility to put my my skills into practice and to and to help if I can in any sort of a way. So, a couple of days after I'd been sat in the garden with my cup of coffee early in the morning, as I'm prone to do, I had been th- and thinking about how rubbish and weird it felt just not to do anything. Um, I ran into a chef I know in the local butchers in St. Werberg's where I live. Uh, and that's the other thing to say about Bristol, right, is that we're the, the, we're the world's biggest village. Uh, Bristol really is a series of small villages that have slowly merged together over time. And, and you literally can't go anywhere without running into the people that you know. Um, uh, and there are great benefits to that. But then also, if you if you don't want to see people, it's also quite hard to not run into them. So um, anyway, we ran into each other in the butchers um, and we're having a quick chat, grabbing our morning coffee. Uh, and I said, it feels weird to to not be doing anything to help. I said, I, I, you know, I've been thinking what we would normally do is X, X, Y, Z, gave him some ideas, uh, laughed jokingly and said, you can have that one for free. <laughs> and uh, off he went, uh, seemingly thinking it was a good idea. And, and off I went thinking, perfect, right? That's That's good. Here's an example of where I've got an idea about something that could be done. It's not me that's in a position to do anything about it. I can hand that idea off to the people that I know are in a position to take it forward. Uh, I can choose not to be attached to the outcome. That's not my business anymore, right? I've given the I've given the idea away, so I, I have no permission to have a comment about if it looks like I think it should or not. Um, and the initial the initiative still gets to happen in the world. I've passed the idea on. Win 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 all good things right all good things and um on reflection that really should have been the end of it like it really should have been the end of it um but a week later i was contacted by a different restaurant um uh people who i've known for a very long time some of the first chefs i met when i first moved to bristol uh people that i've got an awful lot of uh, professional time and respect for they really they really walk the walk and not just talk the talk uh and when they got in touch and said uh would you mind lending a hand uh i said yes <laughs> obviously i said yes so uh on reflection what i should have done was say no i should have said it's really lovely of you to think of me i really appreciate being asked right now like it it, it felt good to me to be asked uh but i'm really not operating in this space right now uh, I could have offered to do a, a very small number of super limited things, like send me the copy and I'll have a look at it, or write me the press release and I'll and I'll issue it. Um, but outside of that, uh, I have made an active choice not to be operating in this area for the time being. Uh, but instead, what I said was yes, of course I can lend a hand uh, because. Uh, if you're someone who really struggles to set professional boundaries, it turns out that when you start trying to say no to stuff, uh, you get this fantastically helpful and amazing incoming wave of fear and anxiety. Um, uh, it's a practice, right? It's absolutely a practice. Saying no when you're used to being someone who says yes to everything, uh, it, it's a challenge and it really takes time. So, um, what you need to know, the, the missing bit, is just before I went to Devon, um, I left a message for the other chefs, the ones that I had run into in the butchers. And I said to them, um, and, and just to be totally clear, I contacted them. They did not contact me. I contacted them and I said, tell me what you're up to. I'll include it in the press release in the newsletter that we're going to do. Uh, we'll communicate everyone together as a joined up whole. Uh, and, you know, we all benefit from the reach. Um, and this is what I will do. And off I went to Devon. I came back from Devon on the Tuesday afternoon, uh, feeling all spacious and nourished and just wonderful feeling. Um, and BBC Points West had picked up the fundraiser story um, and they had filming uh, that they wanted to coincide with another piece of filming they were doing about a different fundraising project. And uh, could everything be ready to go by Wednesday afternoon? Uh, bear in mind, I got back from Devon on the Tuesday afternoon. Um, so all of a sudden, we've got this tight, fixed deadline. And I have to be honest, I didn't really think too much about it. I was in a brilliant place. I just got back from Devon. Like we just got busy. We got the campaign finalised. We put together materials, queued up all the newsletters and press releases. Points West came out to the restaurant and did their filming. Uh, 
I got to go out and spend some time at the restaurant. It's a stunning, beautiful place where a place where I love to go. Um, like all looked good basically. And it wasn't until seven or eight o'clock on the Wednesday evening after the Points West piece had gone out and we were beginning to come up for air, uh, that suddenly I remembered that I had promised to include the information from the other restaurants and I hadn't. And again, this is a me issue, right? This is not a them issue. I made a commitment. I broke that commitment. I said I would do something and I didn't. Um, what I shouldn't have done, uh, but what I did, which on reflection was a mistake, was that uh, on Wednesday afternoon, I also put the initiative up on the Food Union social media channels. I did a post that said, uh, we're just popping up because how could we not? You know, there's a war on. <laughs> um, uh, but in retrospect, I shouldn't have done that. Um, uh, or if I did put it on social media, I should have waited for everybody else to go, all the other restaurants and what have you, and then quietly popped up with something. Um, but what happened instead was that the Ukraine initiative went live. And because of the way that I had issued the newsletters and then stuck it on social media, um, uh, it made it look like I was far more involved than I was, right? It looked like that communication had, or the campaign had come from me in some kind of a way. Um, and it really hadn't come from me. Like I'd offered to write some copy and do some press work, but only because I've still got these fantastic contact databases that built up over a 20 year career. And, and, and when something terrible happens and when uh, there's a lot of motivation to uh, get help to the people that need it, it just seems ridiculous not to put them to good use in some way. So um, I thought I was being helpful, uh, but it did make it look like uh, the kind of campaign or the initiative had come from me and because my writing in January um has upset a core group of Bristol restaurants so much um what I saw on the inside you wouldn't necessarily have known it on the outside but what I saw on the inside was absolute radio silence right <laughs> just radio silence particularly across that core group of um uh, high-end hospitality businesses in the city some people communicated it some restaurants and some cafes uh, some fantastic organizations in the city that the food unions worked with previously and um, uh, I, I've been quite hesitant about whether or not to talk about this because uh, the project itself has actually been a fantastic success. They've sold uh, over a thousand raffle tickets. I think they had a, initially had a 10K target. They've sold over 20Ks worth of tickets. Um, you know, it's been a really positive thing and it will get money to people who need it, which is the the only core objective. And so I'm, I'm quite hesitant to highlight the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Uh, but across social channels, all of these restaurants who donated prizes and who'd been fantastically happy to support the initiative uh, before they realised that, that I was involved, when it came to promoting it, uh, they weren't going to promote anything that looked like it had come from me, right? Uh, and the important thing in this scenario is to own my shit, right? This this recording cannot, cannot come off as, I'm someone who used to enjoy privilege and influence, and it's a shock to realise that I don't enjoy that same privilege and influence anymore. Poor me. No, I mean, that's that's not what this is. This is setting boundaries and saying no is really hard when you're constantly used to being busy and running. I should have said no and I didn't. I said I would do something uh, to include this particular group of restaurants and I didn't. Uh, I promoted the initiative first on BFU social channels when I shouldn't have done. Uh, and my motivations for getting involved were I want to help in a crisis. I find it really difficult not to rush in when I see there's an opportunity for action. And honestly, because so much of this work is about owning my own shit, um, even though it's super uncomfortable, like I'm, I'm, I was probably trying to hang on to, um, you know, some thread of my previous professional identity and, and to prove that I'm someone who can still organise or can still communicate something like this. Um, uh, my ego was in control. Red flag, red flag, red flag. So, um, but what was really interesting to notice was that my emotional response uh, to feeling like I had pissed off specifically that group of Bristol restaurants again uh, is not a normal emotional response in the professional sense of the word. 
um, as soon as I thought I'd upset them. And and just to be completely clear, like I barely spoke to them, like I barely spoke to them a couple of text messages or this is this is not a them issue to a certain extent. This is a noticing my emotional reaction uh, to feeling like maybe I had done something wrong or maybe I had pissed them off in some way. Um, and what happened was that this incoming wave of fear and anxiety not even funny like honestly it it nearly floored me um especially off the back of returning from Devon to be pulled straight back into this space of restaurant politics and social media and who shared wash and if who'd upset if I'd upset somebody and every fiber of my being just wanted to pack right up run straight back to Devon and live in a in a sunny longhouse and write poetry for the rest of my life um uh it was it was do you know what it was it was the the months the months of january and february it was the space away from it uh that made me realize the fear and anxiety that i feel when i come into contact with it um uh, and that i've massively normalized situations that give me extreme anxiety for a really long time uh and it, it's interesting because it's only when you move away from something and then you re-experience it again that you think like goodness me like how how did I live like this um it becomes very understandable to me that uh I ended up in a place where I was quite burnt out um because uh I have been carrying and living with an extreme kind of psychological fear of a certain kind of bloke and a certain kind of bloke that's quite dominant in the food and hospitality industry um and you wouldn't have known it, right, from the outside. That's particularly why I've been a bit hesitant about recording this piece, because how helpful is it to talk about local politics publicly? Do you make a situation worse by drawing attention to it? And especially when it comes to something like war and fundraising for Ukraine, why drag into any politics into that at all, right? Any fundraising helps. There's a there's a fucking war on and it's so much bigger, so much bigger than any of this bullshit. But at the same time, I think that's what was so frustrating about it was internally behind the scenes you could see all of those internal politics playing out about who gets to do good stuff and who has permission to raise money and are we going to support that person with our social media following and and our social media following is really significant because when we put stuff on social it equates to large numbers of donations um, uh, and there's a power in that right there's a there's a, 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 a an ability to choose how 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 you focus that power how you target this power so it it felt like it was important to start drawing this conversation out into the public domain and to start to ask ourselves who does have permission to do good things why is it possible to raise so much more money with the approval of key restaurants than it is without them why does that group have access to turning on a funding tap so easily why is there such power and influence amongst the bristol boys club and such power and influence that if I'm perceived to have been blacklisted, which let's face it, is exactly what's happened, a lot of other restaurants in the city will go silent or fall in line with that boys club. Because there is no middle ground, right? You're either with them or against them, you're for them or you're not. There is no there's no space for what I would refer to as big mama energy, right? <laughs> this idea that you can really love something. And you can see all the good it's capable of and all the possibility and all the potential. And, and you know, this is personal because I spent 21 years in a relationship that were, where I could see all the possibility and all of the potential, but eventually had to own up to the actually really dysfunctional ways in which this relationship, it might have all this possibility and potential, but it wasn't living into it. It was actually really committed to an old way of being. And that old way of being um, is really unsustainable and really toxic. So for me, big mama energy is this idea that you can love something, you can see the good that it's capable of, but you can also clearly see the need for it to grow the fuck up. Complexity duality both things are true both things are true that these businesses could be uh, a bastion of what good food engagement and community and young entrepreneurship looks for that's true that's true they can play that role and that there's some deeply dysfunctional behavior going on at the heart of how those businesses are run both things can be true 
Um, and it was in this context of feeling pretty frustrated about the petty smallness of chefs that cannot get over themselves, uh, can't even get over themselves or get over how they feel about me to raise money for a much greater cause, um, that I then watched the the Keith McNally debacle sort of play out over social media. Um, For listeners who don't know, um, Keith McNally is a London-born restaurateur who made his name in New York in the 80s and 90s. He's got a number of successful bars, restaurants and nightclubs. And uh, back in 2013, he tried to bring his Balthazar restaurant concept to Covent Garden. Uh, And uh, it was met with sort of mediocre reviews at best. Um, uh, And recently, Keith has been keeping industry tongues are wagging with his increasingly unhinged social media posts, uh, mostly taking pop shots at our female national food critics. Um, Initially, it was a a weird obsession with Marina Rolopin, which seems to be almost entirely based on the fact that he definitely possibly fancies her. Um, There's very like Piers Morgan and Meghan vibes uh, going on. Uh, but as of last weekend, he was also uh, taking shots at Faye Mashler, who's the woman who was the restaurant critic for the London Evening Standard for over 50 years uh, before she uh, left in 2020 and moved on to review uh, restaurants for the upper crust glossy that is uh, Tatler magazine. Now, Keith McNally does not come off on social media as a great guy. Uh he obviously has no desire to age out of the industry gracefully. There's something about the whole vibe, about his, um, the, the, I don't know, the weird use of capital letters, about how he publishes uh, uh, staff management reports. I don't know if he has permission to do that or not do that. Uh, this kind of finger pointing like, uh, I'm going to be a good guy and raise some money for Ukraine. So all of you fucking New York restaurants should do the same thing. There's something about it just sort of like sits quite uncomfortably um with me uh but his attacks on particularly british female restaurant critics is really interesting um mashler's review of balthazar for example is is way kinder than jay rayner's was uh mashler owns her existing relationship with the restaurateur and is open i mean like worryingly open about the nepotism (laughs) the fact that their kids go to school together is explained as if obviously that means she had to review his restaurant um there doesn't seem to be much thought to the idea that maybe the fact that you have an existing relationship is exactly the reason why you shouldn't be reviewing his restaurant in the first place. But but never mind that. That's a, that's a whole other topic for another time. What got under my skin and uh, why I think it's relevant here was the way in which the establishment rushed in to defend against this idea of uh, corruption when it comes to UK res- uh, restaurant reviews. Um I mean, all right, corruption's a very triggering word, right? It's not, ex- there, is, there isn't corruption in the sense of um, how we imagine it in the movies, that like secret backhanders and um, uh, some strategy to only review certain restaurants or a secret coven of, of global restaurant critics that meet in beautifully designed gastronomical spaces to decide what they are going or aren't going to say about some sorts of restaurants. I mean, that's not how it works, but... You cannot say, you absolutely cannot say that there is not an inner circle of influence whose recommendations will almost unequivocally mean a spate of national restaurant reviews, right? And it's not even just the reviews and the restaurants. It's across the whole good food movement, food restaurants, media scene. I I met Keith McNally. I met Keith McNally in 2013. Very, Very, very briefly, he will not remember me, but I was working for Patrick Holden at Sustainable Food Trust. And Keith was doing the rounds because that's what you do. You arrive into the UK from a few certain key places. America, slow food, um, sorry, San Francisco or New York mostly, uh, Italy and slow food, Darina and Ballymaloo. You know, the UK is small and actually our, our food scene is relatively small. Um, uh, and and nationally, there's or certainly kind of in, in the South, no, nationally, mo- lots of people know each other. Um, uh, and word of mouth is everything and uh, recommendations, positive or negative, uh, rip through the food community like wildfire. It's partly why the, the personal professional reputation thing is so important, right? Um, you cannot say 
that when someone from abroad uh, hits town, um, normally from one of those, uh, I, I call it the world of the one names, right? You really know you've made it in food when everyone refers to you by just one name. We've got Jamie and we've got Nigella, uh, but it also works internationally as well, right? We've got Alice and we've got Darina and we've got Petrini uh, or Colleen to his friends. Um, and, and it's a mark of approval. It's a reference from an introductory email for. Of course, it automatically opens doors. You, you have these people who are interested in positive engagement, in, in, in securing positive reviews, who know to do the rounds um, and know to, to where, where, where are the right gatekeepers. And then you have the industry influencers throughout the UK who are constantly drip feeding recommendations to national reviewers. We can't sit here and say that that, that circle, that influence of sphere of influence doesn't exist. We certainly can't act like outraged at the very suggestion of it. Let's take Bristol, right? Let's take Bristol as an example. If Mark Taylor, who's the food writer at the Bristol Post, um, recommends your restaurant to the Old Boys Club, it is absolutely correct that you are more likely to see a review come out from Tom Parker Bowles or Matthew Fort or Tim Haywood or one of that lot, right? If it's the Clifton wine set and they're getting excited about a new independent, you will fairly quickly see that translate into reviews from Jay Rayner or Xanthi Clay and co. We cannot be so unself-aware as a sector and as an industry. Our collective ego cannot be so delicate and fragile that we can't even begin to admit that there absolutely is a tight-knit sphere of influence and that if you're plugged into it, you are more likely to enjoy better reviews and coverage and success than if you're not. What's really interesting to me about the Keith McNally story, if we go back to Guardian Observer coverage, is that he gets this really quite substantial and, and beautifully well-written profile from Alan Jenkins in the February followed up by a relatively scathing restaurant review from Jay Rayner in March. And Rayner's whole point, the whole underlying message in his piece is, why am I here? Why am I coming here if I know I'm going to hate it? And I think the reason used in the article is, um, oh, well, I'm coming, you know, I, I, I do these things so you don't have to. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Rayner, like I really, but, but bollocks, right? <laughs> That's just bollocks. Why do you have to? Why do you have to be there? Why do you have to give voice and platform to those who already have got plenty of voice and platform because they are well-connected, well-moneyed individuals who can afford expensive PR people? Because famous people are there? Because money and influence is what controls the room? Ultimately, the more coverage and the more airtime he gets, the more it translates into customers, the more it translates into income and profit, and the more likely it is that his business is going to succeed compared to others who didn't have the same sorts of connections. And if the quality of the offering or the ethos of that business does not make it worthy of the kind of financial benefit that comes from this sort of exposure, then why are we doing it? Where's the integrity in it? Just because the rich and famous go there. If he's already got the rich and famous in his pocket, he doesn't need any more customers. He doesn't need to be pushed by UK food media. In and of itself, recommending isn't a problem, right? You can't stop people from recommending restaurants to their friends. The entire industry, in fact, is dependent upon people recommending restaurants to their friends. So what does it matter where the recommendation comes from? Well, it, it matters if your recommendations are only coming from or mostly coming from wealthy white influencers who really only ever visit a certain type of restaurant or only feel comfortable in a certain type of restaurant. It matters that Keith McNally got the sorts of coverage that he got. Coverage that he's obviously not happy about. Coverage that did not live up to the expectations that he had around his own magnificence. I imagine it probably stung. It stung to return to your hometown after especially the overinflated hype of American style success, only to have your returning be greeted with a collective meh and, and a fairly obvious personal dislike, which can be easily noted from a really quick read between the lines. But the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of national food critics and restaurateurs who rushed in to say, how very, very dare you. How dare you. Come for our women. Don't you dare, McNally. How very, very dare you. Like, it just, 
it got right under my skin. It got right under my skin because it absolutely is about who you know. And you're absolutely more likely to get reviewed if you know the right people or you have the right PR person or... And in addition, the critics will be kinder. They'll be kinder and more forgiving and more compassionate towards any mistakes when they're writing about their friends or friends of friends or a guy whose other restaurant they know and like and go to really regularly. They won't do that if they have no tangible loyalty or connection to the place, right? There's no, there's no, there's no predisposed obligation to say no nice things if you have no connection whatsoever to the place. That's just reality. It's basic human nature. We can huff and puff and deny as much as we like, but it is, it's fundamentally true. Is Keith behaving like an asshole? Absolutely, yes. Are the things he's jumping up and saying on social media probably unfair or ill-founded? Yes, but like all madness, there is a grain of truth. And it's a hypocrisy for us to leap into that space and proclaim the uh, uh, that, that UK food media does not have an incredibly closely intertwined or complicated relationship with the decisions that individual food critics made about which restaurants get coverage and which restaurants don't. Just the same as we make decisions about which people have access to that inner circle and which people don't. You know, I, I really felt for Mimi I on social media this weekend, reflecting on the situation between herself and the food critic Grace Dent. She really brought home to me the fact that uh, speaking out about this stuff, drawing attention to this stuff, trying to carve out space for a conversation uh, when it, with an industry that would really much rather that you didn't, there's a cost to it. It costs you something. Uh, my immediate, I mean, at, at the moment, it's now March. I haven't had a paycheck since December. My my short term and immediate financial situation is absolutely dire, absolutely dire. The quickest and most immediate income I can generate myself for myself is offering my communications and community engagement skills in the food and hospitality space to the good food movement. Uh and yet there doesn't seem to be much space for people who uh, want to be able to tell the truth and still want to be able to work on good stuff within that same industry. But, I mean, specific to Bristol, what you don't get to do is silence or bully me out of the space. Like, I'm really sorry, but food is... Or if I created the impression in January that what I was doing was stepping away from food completely, then I have miscommunicated because what I meant was... I need to set up my life in such a way as I no longer regularly come into contact with a certain element of uh, Bristol uh, hospitality businesses and uh, the, some of the national food media sent that, that it's quite traumatizing for me that I have not had a positive experience and I need some time and space away from that community in order to be able to really process and work through what happened, what happened to me. But this idea that that means that I no longer have any right or authority to work in the food space, to turn my attention nationally or internationally to help other areas, regions or projects achieve the same sorts of things that we've achieved here in Bristol, to continue to work with young people or to continue to work with new food entrepreneurs. I mean, just I, I think that's what's so brilliant about food as well, right, is that um, nobody owns it. Nobody, nobody has the right to tell anybody else how they should or what they should or shouldn't be doing in that space. So between the local restaurant politics going on in Bristol, whose projects get support and doesn't, who's who's going to, you know, show up for me in public spaces or not. Um, uh, and then if you add to that uh, the national food media conversation, both what was going on with Keith McNally and then also the Mimi Grace Stent conversation. I mean, I think the thing that really upset me about that was that um, the comments that she got were, uh, it looks like she learned not to bite the hand that feeds her. Doesn't it look like it? This this taught her her lesson? Well, I'm sorry, but just bollocks. What a lot of bollocks. <laughs> this, the idea that it's not possible to criticise um, an industry. I mean, is, is our ego really so fragile? Is, is our industry sense of self so precariously balanced that after two years of COVID and business collapse and changing priorities and feeding people who needed us, that we cannot create space for something that's more self-aware and accepting and 
that we can't talk about the fact that a lot of what was going on pre-pandemic is not okay and that the national priorities have changed and that some of the fluff that existed beforehand shouldn't be allowed to come back again. Come on, lads. I mean, I know across the industry, I know, give or take, Charles Corrin maybe, that we're not inherently bad people, right? I got into food because food people generally are fucking great people. But the smallness and the pettiness of it all, the exclusionary cliques, the left versus right, the us versus them, the new wave versus the establishment, the national food media set with their guilds and their twin set and pearls and the fire and knives kitchen bros stuffing so much gack up their noses and talking about which waitresses they've been hanging out the back of. I mean, we're so much better than this. We are so much better than this. And I want to communicate from a place of love. (laughs) I I want to communicate from a place of love and not from a place of frustration. So here's the love, right? Here's the love piece. I fucking love the food industry. I love it. I adore it. Food changed my life. The opportunity to go to Italy when I was 23 years old, when I was living a really chaotic, the road I was on was not going to take me to a good place. And I don't know, call it fate, call it the universe, whatever, whatever. Something intervened and I got this mad random scholarship and it took me to slow food and it took me to Italy for five years and everything about my life and my work and the opportunities that were in front of me changed, right? My life changed. And that's why this work and this writing is important because I'm someone who's benefited from the privilege of the system, I might not have started from a place of privilege. I didn't come into the system with money or or, or experience. In fact, what I know now was that I was coming into the system carrying significant PTSD and complicated emotional challenges as a result of the situation I'd grown up in. But Italy did a fantastic amount to heal a lot of that trauma. For the first time in my life, I had proper community. I had belonging, right? And and that's what hospitality and the food movement does for so many young people, especially young people who maybe haven't thrived in traditional academic settings or people who um, are a bit lost and a bit off the rails. Like hospitality and the global food movement offered me family and identity and and, and belonging, something that was bigger than my own shitty trauma story, right? Once I was done... And moving back into the UK, once I'd finished up in Italy, I cannot deny that my slow food background and my slow food credentials automatically plugged me into a network, frankly, in this country, of lords and ladies and princes and landowners. And because it's a revolving door scenario. If you come to the UK from some key places or organisations, then you plug into a hierarchy of UK food. And what you come to realise is certainly in the south. Certainly, I feel like maybe it's a bit it's a bit different up north, um, uh, but certainly London and and to a certain extent Bristol is that it's not just the restaurant businesses, but it's landowners and large farmers and food producing businesses. Loads of that industry in the UK is dominated by people who are in a position to decide to take their entire state organic or to launch a fancy new cheese or gin or they're in the position to do so because they have access to land or capital or financial support in the first instance. We have to be self-aware, right? I have to be self-aware. I'm someone who has benefited from the privilege of my university education. It's like going to Oxford or Cambridge, but in food, right? If I hadn't come from slow food, would I have ended up working for Patrick Holden? If I hadn't ended up working for Patrick, would I have ended up with such a strong global network of food and media contacts? And without that network and without my work in that area, would I have been given the abduct of any job? I mean, I like to think so. I like to hope that at various points along the way, just how hard I was working and the quality of the work I was delivering speaks for itself. But I cannot deny that I am someone who has benefited from the privilege of having a CV that contains the names of particular projects or people. Now, we can deny that system exists, 
or we can try, but it's not much good to us. Just like we can't deny that if you try and speak out about the system, both at, both at local chef restaurant level or at national food media set level, it's not met with a lot of love and kindness. You, Mimi's not wrong. You can very much be delisted. I think it's because it's easier for someone with standing and someone with position to dismiss the woke activism of people who care about change and, and treat it like it's all some slightly distasteful joke that gets in the way of the day-to-day day business of living a privileged life. But I have to be honest, I have to be honest, I don't understand how, how that man still has a job. I just don't. I don't understand how that man still has a job. It leads me to believe that either his editor is racist and doesn't care or the whole Times News organisation is racist and doesn't care. But last week's comments about Black Lives Matter and war in Ukraine were so abhorrent. It, it should be untenable to us that uh, a man is allowed to continue to go around communicating about young people or minority communities or just anyone who who gives a shit um, and yet still be allowed to present his reviews as if his opinion on anything in the modern world is still relevant or worthy of profile. It's no longer okay for national food or media or the media industry to keep giving platform to that man. It shouldn't even be a question. So here's where the love comes in. Food people, on the whole, <laughs> part of the reason I ended up in this industry is because food people are amazing. They really are. They, the resilience, the community, the tenacity, the conviviality. There's an awful lot about this industry that I love. From farmers and food producers to young chefs and new entrepreneurs to the, to the relentless work ethic and to the people who are still connected to the land and the earth and the environment. And then the chefs that are able to take that product and turn it into delicious things that nourish families and communities. I'm in food because I believe that food is the most powerful tool we have available to us when it comes to reconnecting people to the earth. In, when it comes to ushering in the changes that are so desperately needed. Reconnecting people to the environment. It teaches them about seasons, puts them into relationship with nature. And unlike carbon, which we all know we have to deal with, but we remain some existential concept, right? We can't taste it. We can't hear it. We can't smell it. Food is tangible and specific and entirely subjective to our own personal backgrounds and histories. Like Petrini says, we all have to eat everybody every day, three times a day. And we can either be passive consumers of a global industrial food system that's doing significant damage and harm, or food can be the tool through which we change everything, right? Change food and you change everything. Because if you have communities of people who are active food citizens, if you have communities of people who are involved in the business of growing and processing and cooking and eating food together, if communities are more actively engaged in the work of feeding themselves, then it's impossible for them to just be passive consumers. They become active citizens, they become active citizens who meet together in community, who entertain space for dialogue with people who maybe don't think the same as them. A lot can be achieved around a table breaking bread. Citizens involved in growing begin to care about green spaces and lack of access and lack of community food infrastructure. So for me, food is the tool, the tool that we have available to us that can cause a wide scale shift in how people relate to the earth. Food is the tool through which we communicate. Nicole Berkelmans, that one's for you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's essential and it's immediate and time is not with us. Time is not with us. And I get that the reality of that is a really scary concept for a lot of people to try and wrap their heads around. And so arguing that, 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 meaningful change is an extremist position is easier for you than trying to wrap your head around the reality that in your lifetime the world is going to change in ways that you have never previously experienced and all your money and wealth and privilege and exclusionary gatekeeping of it's not going to save you is not going to save you when it's the climate that's in crisis right it was 30 degrees above normal in the Arctic yesterday and 40 degrees in the Antarctic. It's COVID is not over. COVID's everywhere again. 
We've got war in Ukraine. And uh, the, I think what I'm trying to get at is that all of this stuff, it's not just random events. They're specific symptoms of a world that is so focused on the story of breakdown and collapse and unravelling that we are co-creating, we are ushering in that exact reality because we are utterly focused on the wrong story. We are still stuck in the world of what's wrong instead of building from a world of what's possible. What we proved during the pandemic is that restaurants and hospitality have got an essential role to play in engaging with and communicating with and educating the British public when it comes to good, regenerative, high quality, delicious food systems. And we know what's possible, right? We know what's possible at a a broader scale because we experienced it being possible here in Bristol right at the very beginning. We are living in a country that is dismantling its national food security as we enter a climate crisis, right? Just take take a minute. We are actively, significantly dismantling, dismantling our national food security, failing our farmers, undermining our markets with international trade deals that care only about the cheapest possible cost of production, never mind the externalities, they can be someone else's problem further down the line. Our conventional food system is so entirely dependent on external inputs in the form of petrol or CO2. There is no scenario in which the cost of those inputs doesn't keep rising, where that system doesn't continue to become increasingly insecure, even more vulnerable to climate shocks, even more inefficient, even more expensive. We will no longer get away with tinkering around the edges of fundamentally keeping the status quo the same. You cannot build a new house without dismantling some of what existed before. This idea that we're just going to greenify the modern capitalist system is, is fundamentally flawed. The focus needs to be on how do we reconnect people to the land and to their communities and to the environment. And we do that by using food as the tool. I believe, I believe that it's factually possible that it is a realistic statement to say that we are facing the strong possibility of global food instability and that this country will need to be able to grow enough of its own produce in the near future to feed the majority of its citizens well, the majority of its citizens well. We're nowhere near close to being able to do that at the moment, right? We're nowhere being close. Is it a message of love? (laughs) Is it a message of love? It's a message of love in the sense of, I see the potential of what's possible. I see this fundamentally important and meaningful role that UK food and hospitality could play in helping with the shift that's needed, the the wide scale, political, uh, emotional, uh, habitual, the shift that's needed, that the hospitality industry has a key role to play in engaging the public through deliciousness, in demanding access to quality local farmers and food producers, in re-regionalising their sourcing policies, in helping to build and send money to diverse, resilient local food communities. It's because I see the power and the value and the importance of food people, that food people have got this essential role to play in reconnecting people to the earth. And why is it brilliant that it comes from food people and not from politicians and not from, uh, you know, NGOs that are committed to getting you to eat less meat or eat your five a day? It's because food people, hospitality people know how to throw a fucking great party a brilliant party, come to our banquet, sit down at the table. Let's figure out how we get on with the deep, meaningful, systemic change that we need. Because right now, the story is still wrong. The whole story is wrong. It's wrong. We're focusing on specific individuals or specific chefs or specific kitchens. So-and-so is doing too much coke and abusing his staff. Well, Fact check, guys. Most kitchens are doing too much coke and and their staff aren't having a brilliant time. Most kitchens. It is incredibly endemic, utterly widespread. There is no point in in takedowns of, of specific individuals, in my opinion. In my opinion. We need to move past the focus on what's wrong 
and instead engage in the utterly inspiring vision of what's possible when you put good food at the heart of local communities and the magic and the power that food people from farmers and food producers through to chefs through to the food media and the bloggers and the social people you guys are the storytellers right you've got this incredible responsibility to tell inspiring stories of change to focus on the good, to, 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 to act as those thought leaders, to the, the number of new food businesses or interesting restaurants or projects that are trying to grow heritage variety of grains or reconnect people and community. We cannot depend on the food programme and country file to, to find all of those people regularly, right? There has to be more work that goes on in community and on an individual level, really finding and profiling and calling out those fantastic projects that do, that are examples of, of where the food system can be this powerful force for good. So that's where I'm at, I think. That is my message of what's possible. It's gone on for quite a long time. Um, I think... What I got really clear about over the last few weeks is that my period of internal reflection and self-flagellation is over, right? Uh, It's absolutely true. I broke a bit in 2016 on reflection uh, for some very reasonable uh, reasons. I was coping with and uh, holding space for a huge amount, a huge amount. And coming out of that, I had someone someone say to me recently who's been reading the writing, they were like, uh, but you're going through something, though. Like you, you seem like you're going through something. Well, sort of, yes. But in reality, I was really going through something. 2016, 17, 18, 19, those were the years when I was really going through something. The pandemic actually got me on the road towards feeling better again. And as I started to feel better, what became clear to me was that certain elements of my life, including the majority of my professional career as I had known it so far, was going to have to go. It was going to have to go. It did not have a positive impact on me and my life. But what's left in that space is the possibility to focus on Those people who aren't trying to carry on as normal, aren't trying to prop up a system that actually is fundamentally unethical and unsustainable and is ready to do the deeper, more meaningful work of what does living through a great unravelling actually mean in reality? How do we need to plan for the future of our businesses in the context of the climate crisis? What is going to happen to UK food supply? How do we create businesses that pay people well and that have sufficient um, drug and alcohol abuse support or diversity and inclusion support? Like all, all of those things that lead to healthier, more balanced, more equitable and inclusive workplaces. How do we do that work when there is no margin in running lots of good food businesses at the moment, when there is no money to reinvest in those sorts of things? That's the space that I'm interested in occupying. That's the work that I am here to do. Time is not with us. Time is not on our side. So I'm going to get on with it. I'm going to get on with uh, figuring out how I get to spend my time doing work that I care about that feels like it makes a difference to uh, people in communities. At some point in the future, a large number of people in this country are going to need to be able to access good food. And I want to spend my time figuring out that as that crisis hits, that there is going to be the possibility and the opportunity for them to do so.